You are now listening to the Oxford Quadrangle, an initiative of the Oxford Hub of the World Economic Forum Global Shapers. On today's episode, we speak with Brian O'Callaghan. Brian is lead researcher and project manager of the Oxford University Economic Recovery Projects. He's an Australian Rhodes Scholar and consultant at the Robertson Foundation. He's also on a leave of absence from the Boston Consulting Group and acts as a consultant to government and business groups on issues relating to energy, uh, public finance and climate transitions. Today, he exposes us to the work the Oxford University Economic Recovery Project is doing, as well as the need for new approaches to economics as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's dive in. Thanks very much for joining us today, Brian. So just to kickstart the podcast, would you mind telling us and our listeners a bit about your a bit about your background and how you got to where you are now? Sure. Hi, Richard and Murphy. It's good to be with you. Um, I am a product of the very um, generous efforts of a community of Australians, South Africans, and Malaysians along the way. I was born in South Africa, spent some time in Malaysia, and then uh, completed my high school and undergraduate education in Australia. After finishing my undergrad, I spent a little bit of time at the Boston Consulting Group, working mostly in the energy space, and then began a PhD program at the University of Oxford. Interestingly, because my undergrads were originally in, well, were in engineering and finance, my PhD was originally in engineering. But within the first week, uh, I had made contact with my new, now current supervisor, and switched into a uh, PhD program with the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment. So broadly in the public finance slash economics space. Brilliant. So it's, first of all, it's incredible that you said undergrads. So clearly there's more than one undergrad there. Um, yeah, well, in Australia, it's very common for people to do a double degree as a part of their undergraduate program. So I'm in no way unique. <laughs> okay, well, I think you're being too modest. But, um, so I've seen quite a lot of the work you've done with the Smith School, um, and, and it's, it's fascinating. And I see that you're, you're one of the lead researchers in the Oxford University Economic Recovery Project, which I've been following closely and re- has, has really highlighted that responding to the COVID-19-induced recession really requires a new approach to economic thinking. So, you know, I think you've highlighted many times that rather than exacerbating the unsustainable status quo we find ourselves in, the large stimulus packages that we're seeing should really prioritize future prosperity uh, and a more sustainable climate. So the first natural question that I think is on everyone's lips is how have we been doing so far and has the global kind of COVID-19 recovery investment been predominantly green or has it been exacerbating existing inequalities? (laughs) You are very kind, Richard, in that assessment. Um, So the work that we do at the Economic Recovery Project is both research-oriented, so trying to understand how governments can simultaneously support economic growth and the environment 
in their spending. Um, but then it also has a very large advisory component in which we work with governments around the world, over 25 so far, in helping them shape their fiscal investment policy. But to your question, $17.2 trillion is how much governments have announced in response to COVID so far. That is by far the biggest uh, fiscal expenditure outside of World War II um, and by far the biggest expenditure during a period of economic crisis. In that $17.2 trillion um, uh, group, it's important to distinguish between what we call rescue spending and recovery spending. Rescue spending is that which is short-term in nature, designed to keep businesses and livelihood, sorry, lives and livelihoods, lives and businesses alive. Um, And the recovery spending is that designed with a longer-term orientation to reinvigorate the economy. So for the rescue spending, you know, like um, unemployment insurance and uh, investments in a vaccine, all of that had to happen. So we're not saying that that spending should have been green. That's in its own little pile. What we are concerned with is the recovery spending because that's where governments have absolute complete discretion. Uh, When we talk about that pile, so far we've seen between 20 and 25% that has been green, i.e. that has reduced net greenhouse gas emissions or is likely to do so. Um, Unfortunately, that means 75% to 80% has been continuing the unsustainable status quo. And so many of the, the listeners out there might be thinking to themselves, well, I've heard, you know, maybe you're in the US, you're in the UK, uh, you might be in one or any spot in Europe, basically, you would have heard governments talking about building back better and their focus on, um, uh, on a sustainable economic future. And when you see 75% of spending not aligned to that future, well, you have to ask yourself whether it's a little more than a media stunt. Wow. Yeah, it really makes you think about the difference between kind of action and and just what's being said out there. But uh, that's really interesting. Um, it, I find it very interesting that the the distinguish, uh, you know, how you distinguished between, you know, this kind of short term immediate relief spending and and the building back better part, kind of the recovery. And as you said, in many ways, the relief needed to happen. You know, the the short-term kind of livelihood grants that have gone out have been essential to to, to saving many livelihoods. But is there a sense that governments should be doing more in terms of bailing out, when they bail out big businesses, they should be linking, you know, the bailout to any conditionalities to green investments. So, for example, I'm from South Africa and the the bane of my existence is the South African Airways, the SAA, which is continually failing, but yet continues to get bailed out, um, as they did during the pandemic, but yet the government failed to impose any conditionalities on decarbonization around that. <laughs> it's funny that you should bring up uh, SAA, South African Airways. I have also been a strong uh, critic of some of the bailout programs, and not because they are bailouts, but because they don't deliver very much for the taxpayer, right? You're taking taxpayer funds, dispersing it, 
in a manner that supports business interest without supporting the taxpayer interest. And so there are strong opportunities, as you as you rightly point out, Richard, to link these bailouts to some type of incentives that bring returns to taxpayers. And one type are green incentives, right? Or green conditions. Um, so you might require, for example, in our SAA example, that the airlines commit to a net zero by, let's say, 2040 target, right? With particular um, uh, particular milestones along the way. And if the company, in this case, SAA, doesn't meet those milestones, well, then the government has some type of uh, retributive opportunity to take from the airline back to the taxpayers. So there are those opportunities associated with rescue spending. And we really hope that in future crises, when um, you know, when the time for rescue spending comes and governments only have a week to, to think about it, they bring in these um, green opportunities for conditionality. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I think that's, that's very interesting. And speaking of recent crises, um, I saw that you were at the recent COP26 uh, climate negotiations in Glasgow. Uh, and, you know, th there's been much commentary on that. And as someone who was there on the ground and is clearly very involved in, in public finance, I'd love to get your thoughts on whether you think COP26 was a net success, uh, pardon the use of net, uh, and has it kept the possibility in your mind of kind of 1.5 or 2 degrees alive, or was there really not enough commitments and it was, it was just more of the narrative, let's build back better, but it doesn't look like it's going to materialize. Yeah, so we saw a lot of talk in Glasgow, a lot of posturing, a lot of repetition of, you know, the common things that we always hear from our governments. We did see some uh, new long-term commitments. We saw very little in the way of immediate action. And when you're talking about a a climate crisis in which every single year of inaction has, you know, a real impact on billions of people, um, that that inaction is quite inexcusable. In comparison to other cops, I'm not uh, an expert, but um, I think there is a, an argument to say that some of the progress made in Glasgow um, was quite encouraging. You know, for the first time, we got the explicit mention of fossil fuels and the cover uh, note. And additionally, the same for coal. Um, we got some new financial commitments to developing countries, but it's on that developing country side that I think we need to look the most closely. Unfortunately, developing countries, once again, and, and it's really disgusting, once again, they draw the short end of the stick. You know, these countries uh, agree have agreed over the course of decades now to shift their economic development pathways to meet climate goals in exchange, in direct and explicit exchange for financial support. But rich countries, surprise, surprise, have not kept their commitment. So while developing countries have been doing their part, rich countries haven't been doing theirs at all. And to make it very explicit, in 2015 in Paris, as a part of the Paris Agreement, um, the parties to the, the COP agreed, well, they, they reiterated a $100 billion target per year by 2020. And they reiterated a previous agreement made in the, the Cancun uh, COP. 
And uh, so by 2020, rich countries had to be dispersing at least $100 billion per year to developing countries. If you listen to Oxfam, by 2020, we were only at $38 billion in new or additional and additional spending, right? So uh, 40% of what was promised. And rich countries turned around and said, well, it's because we can't afford it. Yet in over the same period, you know, just in response to COVID-19, we've seen $17.2 trillion in spending. So you have more than 170 times as much of the promised amount in COVID spending. Um, but uh, yeah, as the, yeah, that's exactly right. As the promised amount in COVID spending, um, but yet we can't even meet that promised amount. And, uh, you know, the linking this back to the proceedings in Glasgow, um, by 2025, there needs to be a new finance agreement in place, one that is a bit more commensurate with the scale of the crisis. So instead of 100 billion per year, you're talking north of a trillion per year. The processes for negotiating that number and the rest uh, were started in Glasgow. I think we were all hoping for a little bit more progress than what we actually saw. Thanks. That's that's really interesting. And yeah, I think I think you're right that the issue of this, this issue of climate justice and kind of the fact that developing countries are expected to not, you know, reap the same benefits of of economic growth based on fossil fuels that developed countries did, uh, but without sufficient financial support, is something that will garner just more and more interest over time. Yeah, and I mean, we can so to link it to COP again. There was an explicit call out of fossil fuels, right? And Richard, you just mentioned how the pollution of rich countries have has you know directly impacted the livelihoods and future growth prospects of poor countries. Um, the fossil fuels point is really important because, again, while we had committed $100 billion per year in financial support this, and couldn't deliver on that, the same year we spent $500 billion in fossil fuel subsidies, right? So what an absolute slap in the face for us to ask developing countries to uh, limit their own growth because of climate, then at the same time make the climate crisis work worse and not deliver the financial resources that we promised. Yeah. <laughs> when you put it like that, it does make it quite astounding that it's allowed to continue. Um, but actually, that, that leads me on nicely to, to my next question, because while they're clearly, you know, country contexts differ dramatically, um, I'd love to get your thoughts on in terms of policy recommendations, are there any no-brainer policies that, that you feel governments really should be adopting to rapidly decarbonize and address issues such as uh, climate justice, but that many aren't? And, and you just pointed one that could be of, of interest there to you know, reduce the subsidies on fossil fuels. Um, but are there any that, you know, kind of to most governments around the world, you would be saying you should be doing this, even if not immediately, uh, kind of regardless of, of, of their socioeconomic conditions in the country? Yeah, I think it's very difficult to propose wholesale solutions that work for every country because every country is different. You know, uh, obviously there are, global trends that are continuing and accelerating, for example, in renewable energy. And you know, we can say with confidence that we will be approaching 100% renewable generation. And so every country needs to be making their own moves in that direction. Um, as a part of the Oxford Economic Recovery Project, we've been focused 
primarily on responses to the COVID-19 crisis. And there we've been looking for policy ideas that both support economic growth and um, some of our climate and other environmental objectives. And so we've conducted uh, large scale global surveys on this. We've done you know, some of our own firsthand analysis and also broad literature reviews to answer the question, is green stimulus actually stimulatory? And the answer resoundingly is yes, yes, it is. Um, the specific opportunities that come up on sort of the, the top of the leaderboard are investments in energy efficiency programs, energy efficiency retrofits. So that's mostly at the household level. Uh, you can think about roof insulation, for example. Uh, renewable energy does come up as particularly attractive, um, makes there's a whole additional um, sort of facet of success that comes when you consider renewable energy investments in developing countries where, you know, that new electricity investment actually uh, builds electrification across the country as well and increases electricity access. Uh, additionally, we find that nature-based solutions or natural capital investments can be quite strong. Uh, many of them can happen quite quickly as well, which is what you need in a time of crisis. And then just to round it out, we also find um, that some of the sustainable transport investments and uh, some of the longer-term oriented clean research and development investments can hold quite strong potential as well. But those two in particular are important to uh, calibrate and direct to uh, on an economy specific basis. Okay, I actually had a follow up question to that. What has been the most innovative solution you've seen in terms of COVID response, particularly looking at the green recovery, which country, which state or subnational government has really designed an intervention or a program that actually has impressed you. And I think the, fourth, the second part of that is, which of these programs has also produced the most returns in terms of impact? So I don't think we're going to be able to answer the second part of that question quite yet. And there'll be a lot of economic research after the crisis to find out which of these actually were the best. In terms of innovation, there are a lot of examples to, to point to, actually. So at the Oxford Economic Recovery Project, we track global spending um, and in 89 countries, which include many developed and developing countries, and uh, so far have 570 or so green policies, specifically green policies that have been announced globally. In terms of those that have impressed me, there have been really exciting examples in Latin America. I'm thinking of one in the D Dominican Republic, um, where you've seen investment in uh, some natural capital infrastructure, right? Uh, sustainable agriculture, for example, which is a space that we we know there are opportunities in, but we just haven't expected to see them popping up in, uh, let's say, the Dominican Republic. Uh, you've seen also in South America, I forget the country, I'd have to look at the database, but uh, one country has, it might've been Jamaica, has paired their tourism investments to green investments. So they're now investing in green slash sustainable tourism. And that has been really interesting. 
Um, we've also seen globally quite a significant focus on hydrogen investment, which prior to this crisis, I think would have surprised a lot of people. But, you know, you saw Germany, I think, investing about 12 billion US dollars in hydrogen. Part of that investment was in a new European hydrogen network. We found that to be innovative because it's it's quite clearly Germany positioning themselves to take some type of long-term control over hydrogen energy flows in Europe, right? Uh, so it's about establishing long-term competitive advantage in the hydrogen space. So Mafia, I think to summarize, we've seen exciting and innovative investments across regions and across green industries as well. And that's, you know, just another um, indication that governments do see valuable, uh, do see value in green recovery investments and uh, therefore asks, you know, poses the question to us, well, why, why isn't everyone doing this? Yeah, thank you. I think that answers my question. Back to you, Richard. Thanks, my friend. I guess just following up on that, two other, or well, one potentially innovative uh, form of spending and one, I think, necessary form of spending that's underfunded are uh, nuclear uh, energy uh, and carbon capture and storage technologies, um, respectively. Have you seen much kind of, uh, clearly this, those, those might not necessarily be immediate stimulus packages that come to mind, but have we seen any investment into those? Uh, so far? Yeah, good question, Richard. So I'm probably about to make a lot of people mad and I apologize for that in advance, but let me let me please explain my, my thinking here. So I have absolutely nothing against nuclear. I think that nuclear, um, you know, from a, from a moral or uh, environmental point of view, I think that we can do nuclear safely. I think that it does have uh, potential in uh, helping in the to counter the climate crisis. But in the context of economic recovery, it makes little to no sense because of the long-term horizons for investment, right? Putting money towards nuclear today means a nuclear plant in maybe, if you're optimistic based on our past experience, in 20 years' time. And uh, the also in terms of the economic returns of doing that compared to some of the other investments, they seem to be relatively low. There's actually a recent paper from Oxford that's shown that nuclear investment has been getting more expensive rather than cheaper because of the additional environmental controls that we're placing on it, right? And those are very necessary, obviously. So uh, from a recovery investment perspective, nuclear hasn't featured much in our advisory and I don't know, there may have been one, but I don't know of um, a large investment in it globally in response to COVID-19. And, and that makes sense to me. On the carbon capture and storage side, it's really interesting because we haven't seen a huge number of plants working successfully and reliably at scale. And yet carbon capture and storage features so prominently in many of the uh, climate forecasts that, you know, those that help get us on a path to 1.5 or 2 degrees of warming. And, and so if you believe those forecasts, we need to do a lot to get carbon capture and storage to a place where, where it meets that, right? There are skeptics who think it will never get there. Um, I think it's too early to, to know, really. I think it makes sense for governments who are investing in research and development to take a portfolio approach. You know, with any R&D spending, you don't know which investments are going to pay off and which aren't. And so uh, it, it makes sense to kind of 
cover your bases there and um, particularly makes sense, I suppose, for those countries that have prior um, sort of uh, skill sets and technological capabilities that could help them, those particular countries, develop competitive advantage in that space. Um, the one note here is we need to be really careful that we're not using carbon capture and storage as, or, or just carbon capture generally, um, as an excuse or a justification to keep our oil and gas extraction and usage processes in place, right? Uh, when you're talking about the economics of uh, oil and or gas plus efficient and uh, environmentally sound CCS, the economics of that are pretty much nothing. Oh, sorry, sorry, just far more complex and worse than your um, renewable energy alternatives. So we just need to be careful that when we're talking about CCS, it's not to enable an oil and gas future. It's to help us go negative um, in our fight against a 1.5 and 2 degree pathway and also to help us in some of the industrial processes, um, for example, ammonium production. Okay, just to follow up on your point around nuclear. And so the Oxford Major Program Management Center or study has a report which says that a lot of large-scale infrastructure projects tend to fail or have cost overruns and are never implemented in time. From your review of COVID spending so far, has that been the focus on governments in terms of doing large-scale, big, splashy infrastructure-type projects that have limited impact on the general population? Populations, or has it been more of what the Biden administration is calling social infrastructure type that would de deliver higher returns? Some of the uh, proposed spending from the Biden administration on social infrastructure stretches quite far beyond what we've seen in other countries. But I think there is an important question. So, so we probably uh, probably won't focus on that very much. But I think the other important part to your question, Moffi, is distinguishing the long-term infrastructure investments between um, from the shorter-term investments. So, for example, investments in uh, some natural capital solutions or home energy retrofits have a much shorter time of implementation compared to, say, building an entire new metro for a city, right? And what we've seen is I think governments being relatively pragmatic about this and taking, again, a portfolio approach. So they're doing a bit of both. Um, and uh, yeah, so they're investing kind of immediately with some of those shorter term projects and then also putting funds aside for the longer term projects uh, in it depends. I don't know if governments are doing this intentionally or not, um, but one would think they're doing it in an effort to kind of smooth your growth curve rather than having sudden steps. Uh, yeah, I hope that answers the question sufficiently, Moffi, but please come back if there's more. I think it does. The, the last point for me is you've done a lot of research and a lot of evaluation of the different programs. Have you seen some of those learnings and insights being translated by policymakers and using them to inform the decisions, both at the multilateral level, so at an IMF, World Bank, EU type level, and on a national and even on a local level. How has that 
have you been able to change and sort of move the conversation towards the right direction or right flow? Yeah. So for us, it's really been, you know, right place, right time. We published a paper in May last year, um, myself plus Cameron Hepburn, who's also at Oxford, and then Joe Stiglitz and Nobel Prize laureate in economics, uh, Nick Stern from LSE and Dimitri Zangelis from Cambridge. This paper got far more attention than we had ever expected and kind of catapulted our green recovery work into the spotlight. Following that, we had several governments reaching out to us directly and um, through intermediaries to ask how to actually do this. And that has continued over the course of the last year and a half. Um, So we've been advising those governments and uh, helping them mostly at the higher levels uh, think about green recovery investments and I'd like to think that we've been quite successful in that. Yes, we've only seen you know twenty to twenty-five percent of recovery spending green, and we'd love for that to be higher, and we're working to make that higher. But that still represents you know seven hundred billion dollars, which is probably the biggest. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the biggest um, green investment that we've ever seen. Right. And we know that we've played a hand in that. Uh, We know directly from policymakers that we've played a hand in that. And we've seen even from some other governments, uh, almost direct copy and paste segments from some of our reports appearing in in their um, fiscal announcements. So, yeah, we've seen some of our advisory leading to spending decisions. And uh, personally, that's quite fulfilling. Oh, that's good. Um, I would say you should give the names of a copy and paste, but I think that might be going a bit too far for this interview. So um, I think we'll just move to the easy parts of the interview. And um, before I hand over to Richard, I think for me it would be, uh, what's your first memory of Oxford? <laughs> so when I arrived in Oxford in 2019, I thought this is a really bizarre place. Everything just seems weird and backwards and it doesn't make sense. Um, you know, from the the terms that the colleges use to describe your your bills, your college bills, they're called battles. You ask someone why, no one knows why, right? You ask someone, why do we dress in a certain way on one of the, the random nights of the year where the college has some you know specific celebration linked to the 1800s. No one knows why. These are just the things that we do. And so in that way, the first memories that I have of Oxford and the, the way that I first described Oxford to others was it's just bizarre. <laughs> okay. I'll mention a lot. You take the last two. I'll yeah. keep Missouri as the headline. I mean, yeah, I think that sums it up for many of us. It's just bizarre. <laughs> um I guess then following on from that, do you have a favorite memory of your time in Oxford that really stands out? I have many favorite memories. And I say that my first impression of Oxford was that it was bizarre and that hasn't changed. But more and more over time, I've you know come to see just how wonderful it is, um, both as a, a place um, and as an institution. And then, of course, uh, the both of those factors are, you know, uh, are made so much more valuable because of the people who are there. So I've built many mem- memories over the course of my two and a half years in Oxford. Um, a, f- a few favorite ones. I recall 
this is, yeah, well, I don't know if I should be describing it positively, but because at the time, maybe it didn't feel that way. But when everyone departed from Oxford and it was suddenly too late for Australians to to leave because our country locked us out. Um, and just having these long months of no one in Oxford and really being able to see, you know, to, to understand the place and where it was situated in the country. I would go on a early morning run. It wouldn't even have to be early. It would be at like 8 a.m. through the city of the center of Oxford and not see another soul. You know, it's like living in a old medieval castle by yourself. Um, so that was a special and unique memory. Uh, and then I think that some of my other favorite memories were over the summer months in both summers that I spent in Oxford. Um, lazing around with friends from all over the world uh, on the bank of one of the, the rivers that reminds its way through Oxford, enjoying some sunlight uh, for Oxford. It might've been, you know, like a heat wave when it was 25 degrees, enjoying that uh, plus uh, some drinks and conversations with friends. Yeah, that sounds very wholesome. Um, I'm very jealous that you got to experience the city with very few people. I like Many people had left it by then, um, but it sounds amazing. Then maybe maybe not the best ending for you, but do you have a most embarrassing Oxford, uh, a moment in your time in Oxford? I'm struggling to think of what that moment might be. Um, I've certainly done silly things, um, but maybe, you know, by my nature, I've kind of separated them from my memory and tried to scowl them out. They're not coming to me right now, but I do have a great secondhand embarrassment story of a time I went for a walk with Moffy <laughs> around uh, uh, Maudland College. And we were kind of going around the back of the college and came to a, a sh small like stream crossing. This is like a stream tributary of one of, of the river. Um, and to get to the, end destination of our walk we had to cross the stream walking over you know a little uh, branch like well a fairly wide branch uh, and i nimbly jumped across it only to look back and see bobby uh with one of his feet submerged uh, in the in the little stream so that's perhaps the the most apt memory to bring up here sorry bobby I'm going to reply and say that I did something similar to what you did and I've scored my memory completely of that. I have no recollection of what you speak. Um, <laughs> not aware. Um, but I think, yes, that's uh, a good way to sort of call the interview over before I get any more embarrassing anecdotes um, out. But I just outside the interview i want to see that brand i'm sure richard will see this this has been probably one of the most fun interviews that we've um, had since we started doing uh, this has been easy and quite um actually fun just talking it actually just feels like we're actually just talking rather than i think the whole structured approach we've taken to the other one so thank you for it um, it was worth waiting till 10 for to summarize no, of course. And guys, thank you so much for those <laughs> kind and I, I think partially overstated words. But yeah, this has been really fun on my side as well. And um, yeah, I, I think all of your listeners are lucky to have you uh, week to week, month to month. Thank Catch you, you later. <laughs> all right.
Lee clearly had a good time doing that. Um, what were the key highlights for you, Richard? <laughs> yeah, it was it was great to chat to Brian. There was so much interesting content covered. But for me, the mismatch that he highlighted between the narrative that governments are putting out of building back better uh, after the COVID pandemic and, and the mismatch of that with the actual fiscal expenditure that we're seeing. And, you know, as you mm-hmm. put out, only 20 or 25 yeah. percent of the stimulus has been kind of pro-green. So I thought that mismatch between narrative and fiscal expenditure was was very interesting and I hadn't realized the extent of it. And I guess following on from that, the fact that Brian pointed out that there's been such a lack of financial support from high-income countries towards developing countries, particularly a lack of, of commitment shown at the, at the recent COP26 for climate adaptation and climate justice concerns. Yeah, um, I completely agree, but it, it wasn't all doom and gloom. He did give us some really good examples of policies that came out from some of the most surprising places and how they were sort of driving change and innovation. So I think overall, the innovative, some of the innovative policies from the pandemic have really been game changing. You're right. I mean, I think he gave some clear examples as well of policies that that governments can use to decouple economic growth from rising greenhouse gases, which is often one of the, you know, put forward arguments that growth can't be green. And he clearly rebutted that and gave some clear policy examples, which was very interesting. But really, it was it was such a fun podcast and a very enlightening and, and interesting episode. And we really thank Brian for joining us today. So just again, thank you all for listening. Join us again on the next episode of the Oxford Quadrangle for more updates on what's happening in Oxford.